Now on view at SCAD Fash, Manish Aurora's Life is Beautiful. Renowned for dazzling designs and a rainbow of colors, Manish Aurora has brought the talent and craftsmanship of India's rich sartorial history to the global forefront, earning international acclaim on runways across three continents. Designing in India since the 1990s, Aurora's glittering garments celebrate extravagant expressions of self through varied materials, techniques, and silhouettes in a triumphant union of Western and Eastern aesthetics adapted to today's multicultural society with a touch of humor. Find out more at scadfash.org. Support for WABE comes from 100 Miles, a nonprofit committed to preserving Georgia's 100-mile coast. Protecting this critical coastal ecosystem takes all of us. Watch the stories of the innovators and future leaders who help keep our coast flowing at OurGeorgiaCoast.org. From WABE in Atlanta, this is City Lights. I'm Lois Reitzes. Thank you for listening. Last weekend marked the anniversary of the 1963 March on Washington. It was during that event when Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. gave his magnificent I Have a Dream speech that has resonated for generations and also reminds us of parts of the dream yet to be fulfilled today. Three years ago, on the anniversary of the March on Washington, a statue of Dr. King was unveiled on the lawn of the Georgia State Capitol. Later, we'll listen back to an interview with sculptor Martin Daw. First, an island destination for kids. As schools continue transitioning to more virtual learning, teachers and parents are having to be creative with how they keep young children engaged and entertained. Challenge Island an internationally known STEAM program, is now offering virtual resources. Here to discuss their new programs is Sharon Estroff, CEO of Challenge Island. Sharon, welcome to City Lights. Thank you. Thanks for having me. What is Challenge Island? Challenge Island is a STEAM program that also works on 21st century skills. It is an adventure. I started Challenge Island actually when I was a second grade teacher right here in Atlanta um, in the Sandy Springs area. And it was inspired by a television show that at the time I was really uh, into. So I thought, you know what, my students would love this idea of having a treasure chest full of materials. They could work in tribes and they could imagine and create. And and this was back before STEM was even a thing. I, I think they hadn't yet rearranged the letters to create STEM. They were still referring to it as SMET. So it was <laughs> it was very um you know, progressive at the time. I also, as a teacher, it was time for me to leave the classroom and move on. I have four children and I had just had my fourth and I thought, you know what, I need to do something else. 
So I knew how much my second graders loved Challenge Island. We would have every semester would take place on a different island. So for example, if we were studying the rainforest, which we did in second grade and life sciences, we would go to Rainforest Island and they would have every week we would go to a different destination tree frog jump or rainforest island zoo you know different things like that and every week they would have a different challenge we'd fill their treasure chest with materials and they would create and imagine and um take on the challenge and it was a hit as i started it in atlanta and still run it in atlanta before we went virtual for the past, uh, I guess it's been 18 years. My daughter's 18 now. We've been growing it. I actually started franchising it in 2013. It's so exciting to say, but we have grown to over 105 locations. Well, actually 105 locations. We are in 32 states and four countries. It's amazing, you know, that we're able to reach so many children. We've been in, we're in about 6,000 schools. We've served about a million children, including many, many, many thousands um, in the Atlanta area over the years. So it's been exciting. Yeah. Now, STEM stands for science, technology, engineering, and math. And that's what you were using with your second graders. STEAM puts an A in STEM, and the A is for arts. How have you adapted this program for the virtual world? One of the really neat things about Challenge Island is that we have never used any digital technology. I'm not talking about Zoom. I'm talking about robotics and, you know, electronics. We're, we really have a very strong philosophy that the kids need to get off of their electronics and, and just interact and imagine. So for us, when we realized March 13th, when all the schools started closing down, I thought and thought, it was Friday the 13th, of course, what else? And I spent the whole weekend figuring out what am, what are we gonna do next? You know, we have all these children all over the country that are need us and they're in our classes and, and, and they also need the consistency um, and sort of the play of Challenge Island, especially then. So we decided to start trying it out virtually. And the best place to start for me was just with my students in the Atlanta area who had still had about six weeks left in their semester, you know, that they had signed up for. So we thought, okay, I honestly didn't know how it was going to work, but I did know that everything that they needed, they could find at home. It wasn't like they needed like a specialized robotics set or like some kind of lego building set you know that they wouldn't have access to whatever they had around the house so we started out you know we always have the treasure chests and they're full when the kids arrive in the classroom but now i just sent them on a treasure hunt around the house um, i sent it you know a few days in advance and and said hey go find as many of these things as you can and didn't tell them what they would be for they came and they came in droves you know to the challenge island a virtual which we named home island it was just the most magical thing to see 
you know, I think all of us kind of had to figure out exactly how it was going to work, but within probably by the second or third lesson, I, I knew this was working and it was, and, and the most amazing thing was this was during like serious lockdown. So the kids, sometimes they would say, well, I, I didn't really have a rubber band. I know it's had a rubber band or I didn't have a balloon. I know we were making catapults and, and launchers one day. And so I said, well, just go find something stretchy. And they would go around. They were engineering out of these, the, the rubber gloves. You cannot even imagine how far a rubber glove can launch a marshmallow <laughs> if, you, if you connect it to a cup. And they were just so inventive and they were creating catapults out of Lysol wipes containers. Oh my goodness. I mean, just to see how resourceful these kids were. And, and it took off, you know, and it, it just, when everyone else started thinking, oh, it's time to go virtual, we were already like in our groove. We had 150 kids in every class because they were all coming. You know, I figured why not just do it all at once? And um, there was something really invigorating for the kids because they could see each other on Zoom. And it was like, wow, I'm home alone, but there's 150 kids, you know, that, that are doing the same thing as me. And we were able to make that jump and it was great, you know, and then we even started getting a lot of attention over it. We, we were named a top three virtual program in the USA by Business Insider. And they, they actually had the president of the American Camp Association vet the programs. Um, they only really liked seven of them and we were number three. So we will take it. So it's been really exciting and to see the program grow and evolve because then when summer came, we started offering summer camp virtually. And that is still going on, of course, because we're in we're across the country and some places are still like in the middle of their summer. They're not going to go back to school till after Labor Day. So, and, the, and another really neat thing is we've been able to have kids from all around the world come to the classes. Yeah. Would you talk about the Challenge Island social bubble? Yes, exactly. So one of the things, Challenge Island, our, our icon is the palm tree. And, and the reason we have always picked that is because it's resilient. It's flexible. It's able to handle things that are tricky and difficult and, and still come out okay. And that's what we want to build in our, our students. But yet we've had to be palm trees and continue to be like the winds keep blowing in every different direction. So just when you think you've got it down, then comes back to school. And it's, you know, the kids have had a lot of virtual over the summer and people are starting to get out of their house. And we knew that what these kids need is the ability to interact, but to do so in a safe way. So what we created were something called social bubble STEAM programs. I, I was just actually talking to a mom about, about planning one in her neighborhood clubhouse. And the idea is that we're doing the challenge island, just like you know we would do in school, or they could even pick a camp if they want, because on Wednesdays, at least in Cobb County where I live, nobody go, they're not even going to school really on Wednesdays. So we thought that would be a good day to even do a camp. But anyway, what happens, they pick up to about 10 kids and they're all of the kids are kids that they know. So they're, they know that that family is also being safe. And then 
we can, you know, this idea of the social bubble that is becoming a, a term that's more and more used, but that's what it is really. And, and it's kind of evolved as well into learning pods. There are uh, parents are getting together and creating learning pods, again, with families that they feel safe with, um, smaller groups. So we are coming in and doing our challenge island, but, but within those social bubbles. Can you give us a few examples of the different STEAM programs for kids who participate in the social bubble? Sure. One of our popular social bubbles and summer camps, especially this summer, has been something that we call our Challenge Island Road Trip USA. So what, what we do is we start out and the first thing they do is they, they need to create an RV because we're going on a road trip. And they all, they're, it's really old fashioned forts. You know, they're, they're going in and they're doing the things that, that children don't really do anymore because they're overscheduled and there's so many electronics, but they love fort building and imagination. And, and so they'll, they'll, they'll create their RV and they put in widescreen TVs and they make their kitchens and their imagination just runs wild. So after that, that's usually the first week, then we will go on and, and we'll go, for example, to San Francisco and they learn about the Golden Gate Bridge and how it's a, a suspension bridge and what does that mean? And, and so they're gonna then build a Golden Gate Bridge. We go to Yosemite, um, and they learn about the bears and, and that they need to figure out a way their challenge every week it's a different challenge so their challenge is that they need to design a campground with tents that also has a way to keep all of the trash in the air you know so that the bears won't come and um and lift it up and, and they use sort of a pulley system we we go of course to orlando and they design roller coasters so it's something different every week um, another really popular one is what we call our Steam Tank Entrepreneur um, Program. And that one is the kids are inventing and learning about what it means to create a product and product design as well as um, marketing. Every single day, we're going to focus on a different kind of entrepreneur. So we have Pizzapreneur. And that one, they actually learn about the story of the Domino's pizza founder, and, and they have a lot of designing and they design a pizzeria. And they have Slime Entrepreneur, that's, that's a hard one, a mouthful, but um, it's all about create, making slime and, and target marketing that slime, because of course kids love slime. And another one of our um, programs, which goes, it's a five day, three hour program, it's called Slimetopia. And because kids can never make enough slime. So we, we learn about the science of slime and, and then we, we make all different kinds of slime. And, and that's when a lot, when the arts begin to come in, you know, the colors and, and the design and, and the packaging, um, all of that, you know, is sort of the integration of STEM with the arts. Yes, well, here at City Lights, we, are all for adding the A in STEM to make it STEAM. 100%. What is Home Island? So Home Island is our entire virtual genre. So what we, were, what we did was before the pandemic, we were doing field trips, birthday parties, 
um, Girl Scout badge workshops, in addition, camps, after school classes. We do Challenge Island Junior with preschoolers and, and some corporate STEAM building. What we did was we took all of that into the virtual realm. So that entire, I guess you might call collection, is our home island collection of programming. So we have virtual Girl Scouts, virtual camps, virtual after school, virtual field trips. And that, that all goes under our home island pile. The other thing that we have added that is new is something that we are calling the Imagination Labs. We are opening pop-up Imagination Labs. And that is where we can do Challenge Island in safely sized groups just within um, in our own space. And, and the other thing, and you know, it's always sort of feeling out the market that we have just rolled out for, for those Imagination Labs is e-learning. Because what's happening is these parents work, they're now full-time teachers, you know, and they can't be if they're working full-time as well. So for them to be able to move that learning, that e-learning into the Challenge Island Imagination Lab, which is what we're doing and we're setting it up and, and the kids have their space where they can um, do their e-learning with their teachers at school, synchronous, asynchronous, and then we're interweaving Challenge Island STEAM throughout their day. And it's worked out really well. You know, it, it's, we're still feeling it out um, exactly how it works. Every school seems like they have a different schedule. Uh, you know, the, the elementary schools are, are doing their e-learning in the morning. The middle schools are doing them in the afternoon. So figuring all of that out. But um, we have found the need for that is enormous. And the market for that has just been so hungry. The parents are so grateful. And I, I think that the kids are as well. Sharon, Addressing equity differences with virtual learning has been a contentious issue nationally. How does Challenge Island offer resources for children from varying economic backgrounds? One thing that we are so proud of at Challenge Island is our relationship with nonprofit organizations like the Boys and Girls Club. Also with the Title I program, which is pro schools where over 40% of the children are on free or reduced fee lunches. That th Those are then considered Title I schools and they receive money. It's roughly about 40% more than what a child would get in a public school per child that money is earmarked for different kinds of programs and challenge island fits them perfectly they love stem and steam programs they love the 21st century skills that we do and lots of other things we've done to just make it perfect and the title one money is not stopping so the ability to provide these kids with these kinds of programs is still there it's just getting to the kids and i think that one of the hardest parts for anyone involved in these Title I schools is that these kids do not have the technology to be able necessarily to access, you know, the virtual field trip that we're doing for them on their, you know, which they would love. But I, one thing that I am seeing sort of nationwide that's popping up, and I, I hope that it comes to Atlanta, I know that this is something that's happening up in um, San Francisco, uh, where they're using a lot of that, that Title I funding and they're getting different donors and then they're creating these centers 
where the kids can go for e-learning. And what Challenge Island would do is then we go into those centers and we'll do the field trip with the kids or virtually, you know, depending on what they want. Sharon Estroff is CEO and founder of Challenge Island. There will be more information about their virtual offerings on our website, wabe.org slash citylights. In a moment, Chef Todd Richard's soul, a culinary journey. You're tuned to WABE Atlanta. The field of mental health counseling is growing rapidly, and Richmond Graduate University can equip you with everything you need as a licensed professional counselor while integrating your faith into your clinical practice. Programs are offered in Atlanta, Chattanooga, and online. Apply today at richmont.edu. That's R-I-C-H-M-O-N-T dot E-D-U. You love free, and at Ameris Bank, so do we. That's why we're proud to offer worry-free, hassle-free Ameris Bank free checking. Manage your money your way with convenient access to digital, mobile, and telephone banking, all with no monthly service fee or minimum balance requirements. At Ameris Bank, we're with you. For more information or to open an account, visit our local bankers in person or online at amerisbank.com slash free checking. Other fees such as overdraft fees may apply. Ameris Bank, member FDIC, equal housing lender. If you've tasted dishes from Richard Southern Fried at Crock Street Market or Lake and Oak Neighborhood Barbecue in East Lake, you'd know that Chef Todd Richards preaches the gospel of soul food in the Global South. His award-winning cookbook, Soul, A Chef's Culinary Evolution in 150 Recipes, explores Richard's personal journey told through food. In 2018, I spoke with Todd Richards after the book came out, and we discussed the influence his family had on his cooking. Let's listen back to that conversation now. Your cookbook, Soul, is as much about cultural justice as it is about the food itself. But above all, it is a joyous celebration of good food. What role did your parents and your grandmother play in your appreciation of food and cooking? It's such an interesting uh, way of approaching food, looking at it through the lens of my parents and, and my grandparents, where every single birthday, holiday was always at our house. And it was a rewarding time to see family come together and to see everything surrounded by delicious food. Mm-hmm. My grandmother's um, cooking evolved a lot because we used to watch every single cooking show on the weekends. Oh. I mean, Yan Can Cook, Julia Childs, you know, Galloping Gourmet, the list goes on and on. And I saw how she would pull different aspects of other cuisines into soul food. And just like in the book, we talked about traditional collard greens, and then we go into sauteed young collard greens. That was the same exploration that my grandmother had as a kid. And it was so fun to see that we can just add other people's twists and touch to common things that we had all the time. Making it quintessentially American and global at the same time. (laughs) That's a very funny 
anecdote you include about taking communion, this going back to your very young impressions of food, you couldn't figure out why <laughs> such a bland cracker could be sacred. Yeah, you know, I just didn't understand that that if if we were to be uh, celebrating uh, the life of, of of God, that how can food be this bland <laughs> in that celebration? That would be sacrilegious uh, at, at our house. We had you know people would bring dishes to our house all the time, and only people who brought delicious food were invited back. So I did not understand that that, that concept. So you screened for that. Of course, you were not Catholic. You attended Catholic school. Yes. You know, our family, we did not really subscribe to one religion. We believe all religions are right and people have the right to celebrate it, just like all food is equally supposed to be delicious. Well, in the foreword to the book by Sean Brock, as well as in your introduction, each of you define soul food. Please tell us about the various meanings. The various meanings of soul food uh, gets distilled down to the most important thing that it's a celebration of family, a celebration of culture, and it's required to be delicious. Those are the three foundations of, of soul food as we both interpret it in our different upbringings, where Sean is from, you know, a uh, rural part of Tennessee. I'm from the south side of Chicago, that we both can come to the same understanding that it has to be implored with love, uh, dignity, and respect for ingredients is the basis of soul food. Being African-American, understanding that that term only started in 1950s, if we only explore that that time period of soul food, that means that all our contributions before uh, 1950s and 60s haven't been uh, categorically uh, accounted for. And then our explorations after that term uh, or that time period means that we have not progressed in the future of food, which is an, a huge misnomer. And that's the reason why I'm glad to see our two different interpretations of soul food in the book. Essentially saying that it's what is at your essence, your soul. It, it's not soul with the reference to a particular type of music or a particular group of people. It, it, is, it transcends that. It does. It's it's true fellowship, uh, and it, I believe I was quoted saying that that soul food in general is a gateway food, and it's a gateway into exploration of people, and it gives you the fellowship to come together and really understand each other's culture. Is there a difference between southern food and soul food? I believe there is a distinct difference in there in the way spices are used, and understanding that from the Africas with the cayenne peppers and the Scotch bonnet peppers you get in the Caribbean and cumins and chili powders that the spices are could be categorically different in their uses however the cooking techniques might be the same okay it sounds like we're getting to the core of more interestingly spiced food <laughs> is with the soul tradition and the the experience of 
non-European. I, I, I would definitely say that. We have to also understand that in order to make chitlins taste good, you got to have some spice inside <laughs> of that, you know, to, to, to do so. So it's not only a requirement of it being delicious, but also it was also painstakingly understanding the history of our, of our culture that we had to do things like that in order to make food taste taste palatable. Indeed, to make the best of of what was available to people on a very limited income. And it also made me think about Asha Gomez. And in her book, My Two Souths, she makes the point that ethnic, in quotation marks, ethnic food, the notion that it costs less is really insulting, as if the food itself or its creators are of lesser value. I mean, why are European cuisines, French or Italian, why should those, you know, come under the heading of pricey and fancy, but 12 hours, 16 hours into <laughs> cooking collards, why is, why is that not every bit as important? I believe most chefs in that value system understand that. When David Chain talks about ramen being the same uh, in the same stratosphere as halt cuisine, the same is for soul food. When you have to think about that collard greens take that long to cook, uh, you know, again, making chitlins something that people will consider a throwaway, a, a delicious part of the meal. And not only that, just erasing the stereotypes that come with things such as watermelon. Watermelon is a delicious food. I, I mean- <laughs> love that introduction you have to the uh, chapter on melons. It's so informative. Would you talk about that and, and also why? Early in your career, you thought about shying away from it. Well, watermelon has a, a stereotypical province in the Americas. It's part of our the fabric of, of our country. And in, most people don't want to admit that our fabric of our country is both good and bad. We, we, we sow a lot of, lot of bad seeds here. And just seeing those caricatures of, of watermelon with the sambos and not being proud of, of how delicious something was that really saved a lot of lives in, in, in slavery, that the image of it was about being poor or being uneducated or, or, or being aloof and, and not uh, part of the fabric of society. And when I started working in commercial kitchens, I shied away from it because the shame that it brought with it. One of my first jobs I was asked uh, when I was applying for it uh, by a chef, he asked me, what was I coming in here to cook? Uh, collard greens, fried chicken, and soul food? Mm. Nobody's going to pay for that. That was in part of the interview process. What year was that? This was 1993. Oh, that is very recent. So so you have to understand that when you're trying to, to educate yourself in culinary kitchens, and that is the first part of the interview process, that entire repertoire of dishes that I'd known since I was a kid were always pushed to the back burner. But in fact, you write that watermelon is associated with emancipation. It is. If you look at other cultures, including our own culture here in, in America, it is emancipation food. I mean, it is a freeing food for, for me. And it's the most versatile food. And really, 
on a hot day in the 4th of July, I mean, what else do you want to reach for? You know, but a nice slice of watermelon. And, and you can utilize the rind for pickling and, and have whole exploration of many dishes. And in the book, we did a, a cooler or a lemonade with, with the watermelon. It is a very versatile food. And it gave me more insight to being proud of my heritage and my culture and those caricatures I just put to the wayside. Good, because I was just fascinated to learn about the importance of melons in Africa for hydration and making use of the entire fruit even for shoes. Yes, we even found them in use for shoes, the, the melons being the, the high, being dried and being soles for shoes. And, and in, in this world, to think about something could be that versatile yeah. that affects that many people. Um, when you see those caricatures, you're like, you know, it's, it's just the oddest thing in the world to me that, that our country would do that to people. I mean, music is important in this book. As well, because you not only talk about pairing foods, you know, main courses and side dishes or drinks with different dishes, you have suggested musical listening. I got that from my parents. Again, in that celebration format, I mean, I mean we probably wore out more needles on records, you know, in, in, a, in a year. And it was great. It was a part of the entire hospitality experience to have music going. And, and different floors had different music. The backyard always had a whole different soundtrack. So you can walk through our entire house and have this whole different experience. In the basement uh, where the kids uh, will hang out, it was a little bit less raunchy than it was <laughs> maybe out back, you know, blues were playing or Ooh. coming from the neighbors next door to have a soundtrack in a book i wanted people to have the entire experience of soul and not just see it through my lens and not just have a incomplete experience well it, it's a wonderful touch and it also complements the way you present recipes because you have collards to start and then after you give, you know, the basically traditional way your take on cooking them, you begin with the improvisations and the riffs with the pickled stems and then inside the egg and toast sandwich. And um, it made me wonder, were you ever a jazz musician? You know, chefs are nothing but musicians that never made it. <laughs> I mean, typically, if you look at uh, most of us, we all have a music uh, gene inside of us. I, I believe improv came out of cooking with my dad and his frugality of not wanting to throw things away. And pickled collard green stems is a perfect example mm. of that. And then the exploration of my mom and her cooking and her food that she did not ever want to be limited to items that could be on our kitchen table. And when you have a dish like collard green ramen from that love of Chinese food mm -hmm. on 87th and Stony <laughs> Island, and my dad frugality of not throwing anything away, that having Chinese food there with this noodle dish with broth and a little bit of ham or pork belly and scallion and egg and my dad reheating collard greens, that in one bowl is a dish I had when I was five, six years old. And it's a dish I never forgot because that vinegar that went with the greens and the spice and the pork belly and the broth, that broth was just there just to drink. It's perfect fusion. I mean, that is what 
you can do when you explore dishes. You start with the uh, tradition, pick up things along the way, and then you have a whole uh, complete repertoire of dishes that you never had before. And when you are explored to other cultures. I believe that soul food is the most American food there is because along the way it has uh, grabbed other cultures inside of it, but it still distinctly has this bite and sound and feel of its origins. Mm, much like American music. Ultimately, Todd, how can honoring our own culinary heritage help unite us with those of different heritage? Well, we really find commonplace. I have a great friend uh, here in Atlanta, Guy Wong, you know, who has several restaurants. And his broth for ramen reminds me of my broth for collard greens. Uh-huh. And, and those similarities, I can go there and just drink the broth and know his whole family's history. And the same thing, he can come to one of my restaurants and drink the broth and understand my whole family's history in that. And we find commonplace. And in, in, and don't mean to be preachy here, but in the way the world is right now, we have to find more commonplace. And the only way to do that is to eat together and celebrate each other's culture. Chef Todd Richards' cookbook is Soul, a chef's culinary evolution in 150 recipes. Chef Todd will also take part in two events at the upcoming Decatur Book Festival, Jubilee Talks on September 9th and Soul on Grill on September 13th. Last week, marked the anniversary of the 1963 March on Washington and Dr. Martin Luther King's historic I Have a Dream speech. August 28th also marked an anniversary of a civil rights milestone for public art here in Atlanta. It's been three years since the unveiling of the MLK statue on the grounds of the Georgia State Capitol building. Sculptor Martin Daw joined me in 2017 ahead of the unveiling. He spoke about the responsibility and challenges of creating Dr. King's likeness. Well, you know, first of all, it's an an enormous responsibility. Um, It's the only the... uh, eighth sculpture going on the Capitol grounds. It's the uh, first non-elected representative ever going on the Capitol grounds, and the first African-American. So, and this will be there for quite a while. So, a great responsibility. Uh, Andy had selected a photograph uh, of MLK coming out of the Montgomery Courthouse in 1958, and he sort of liked the pose, and I loved it. it's a beautiful contrapposto with MLK just stepping off. So contrapposto, you have a weight shift and a wonderful S shape to the, to the body. Um, so we use that as the inspiration image. Uh, and I sculpt a, a maquette, which is a mock-up for, a, a, which is a, a sculpture lingo for mock-up. So we did that and um, had that approved. And then we had to go through a long process to figure out what size to make it. Um, the sculptures at the Capitol vary from almost life size to 10 feet tall. So um, 
We took the maquette and photoshopped it into the site. We did a large cutout at eight feet tall and placed it there and walked around it, uh, just trying to figure out what the right scale would be, uh, and decided on eight feet. Eight feet. Mm -hmm. And you said the photo was taken in 1958, so mm -hmm. it, he was very young. Yeah, yeah. Uh, um, so we used that as the inspiration image for the gesture. Then I sculpted him uh, at the age of 35 from 1964. That was all the imagery that I used. And um, it's the most difficult portrait I've ever done in my whole career. Talk yeah. about having a giant <laughs> staring <laughs> over your shoulder. Uh, really? Well, and he just, a lot of times when I do portraits of famous people, I look at political cartoons of them to capture, to see how a cartoonist captures something about cartoon, you know, capturing the, what they look like. Um, there are no good cartoons of MLK. He, had a, he has a, a wonderful distinctive profile, but front on, uh, he has a very complicated shape to his face. What makes it so? It has uh, uh, the gestures in the forms. Uh, there are a lot of indents uh, around the temple and some on the sides of the face that uh, you can't really see in photographs. Um, uh, I ended up using a video loop of an interview with him over and over again in slow motion because the pictures didn't tell you the whole story. So he has a very, had a very difficult face to capture, and I think that's why so many people have had a hard time with it. Interesting. Um, uh, so watching the video loop over and over again, I was able to see forms move in space back and forth and back and forth until I was able to kind of capture exactly what he looked like. It's so. so interesting to hear you talk about this very visual process, um, kind of a window into the crafting, if you will, of your art. I was wondering if maybe you also played audio of his speeches. Well, I, I, I had um, four different uh, uh, DVDs that I would play all the time. Uh, yeah, to get a sense of, well, of course I wanted to know more than I already knew about him. Uh, uh, so watching all those, and then yes, just to have him in the room with me, mm. to, to be inspired by it. Um, because the other, if, if you look at 20 pictures of MLK, five of them you wouldn't know it was him. Uh, there's a couple I could show you if I showed you out of context and asked you who that was, you'd say, I, don't, I can't tell who that is. And you think that's because of the complexity of his facial structure? Absolutely. Absolutely. So that made it really, really challenging. And I'm sure different people have a different idea of what he looks like. And so much of that, I would think, as with the Dalai Lama, it's perhaps when people think of him, they think of an aura um, a countenance, mm -hmm, if, mm -hmm. if you will. A presence, an amazing presence, do you know? And, and, and so in, in deciding on, on some of the subtle details of the pose, the, I'm really, a, my language is, 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 uh, uh, is body language. That's what I, that's what I uh, uh, communicate in, you know, uh, in doing figurative work. And you can change you can change the whole feeling of a piece by the, by the way the neck is set. Um, have you ever watched the 
TV with the sound off and you can tell what people are saying and how they're feeling. You can tell their character. You can tell a lot about them with no sound. So that's what I study is, is, uh, is body language, really. That you move the angle of the head two degrees and it changes it completely. So we have him looking slightly to his left with his head off a little bit to the left and then his eyes are looking a little more left. Um, because when you're not looking straight at somebody, you know when you're talking to somebody and you look up to the side? It's because you're thinking. Mm-hmm. So when you look at him with his eyes off to the side, my response is, what's he thinking? And that, you know, that gives me goosebumps. Yeah. What is, he's looking at MLK Boulevard from this place. Would you talk about the placement of the sculpture? And first off, it being on the grounds of the state capital of Georgia. I mean, our history here is fraught. Absolutely. I think we live in a day and a time where we're feeling some regret f- for the fact we aren't further along. But this, this statue has amazing symbolism because, as I just said, he's looking at MLK Boulevard. Can you imagine as a teenager if someone said, this road next to the Capitol is going to be named after you? So I, th- I think we have to put ourselves in the perspective of how he grew up and how far we, we really have come you know, a, a good ways. There's still, of course, a long way to go, which is what we seem to be concentrating on now. But I think this could be a symbol for how far we have come, you know? One would only hope. Any discussion of the MLK statue must include the tragic death of sculptor Andy Davis, who was killed in an accident in 2015. Did you have any connection with him at all? No, no, I, I, I didn't know him at all. No. So how were you approached to take the commission? Well, they, uh, for the first round, they didn't do this. But for the second round, uh, they had uh, hundreds of applicants. Uh, so they went through the traditional vetting process. They uh, being? The, the uh, Capital Standards Arts Commission. Uh, which was uh, Representative Smyre, um and the uh, uh, governor's assistant, Carrie Ashby, um, and Eric Tidwell from the King Center. So they did, uh, they did interviews, studio visits, uh, before they selected me. What's it like when your client is the state house? <laughs> <laughs> um, well, specifically working with uh, uh, Representative Smyre and, and Carrie Ashby and Eric Tidwell was a joy. So uh, I tried to ignore that other pressure. Maybe. <laughs> <laughs> Do you know, I, 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 I did wake up a lot of times. It seemed to always be 4 o'clock in the morning and a little bit of a cold sweat. Do you know? Um, you, 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 uh, the goal while you're sculpting is to be as uh, objective as you can be. You want to look at it a year later, 10 years later, and say, oh, uh, uh, that worked. So, so to be able to do that while you're working on it, you, you kind of have to create a little bit of a distance, as if you were somebody else looking at it. Well, speaking of the distance and looking at it, I'm curious about the decision for eight foot tall, eight for making the statue eight feet tall right right it's it it uh it uh, 
it's a hundred percent based on how it looked in that particular site. Uh, with it's on the northeast corner of the Capitol. Uh, the ground level is about uh, ten feet above street level, so it's a natural theater. You won't, you won't, you'll always see it from far away. Um, uh, so when we tried the different sizes in Photoshop, uh, it felt like it almost looks life size from a block away at eight feet tall, because we we naturally see a figure and think of it as life size. The the Herman Talmadge is nine or ten feet tall. The Jimmy Carter is just barely life size. So without any trees around it and the large, I mean, it's enormous building behind it. Um, we did, did just we did a. Uh, Dr. Charles Drew for the Drew Charter School for Mrs. Cousins, and I made it twice life-size, the head. I made it enormous, uh, almost three-foot head, and they were so worried about it being too big. Then we put it in front of a 70,000-square-foot, four-story contemporary high school, and it shrank. They loved it once it was in. So in my studio, it looked too big. I, I didn't want them to see it in the studio. But once you put something on the site, almost subconscious perspective happens to you that you don't really aren't, aren't aware of. So the eight feet, nine feet felt too tall and seven feet felt too short. It's like, you know, Goldilocks or something. You know? <laughs> <laughs> Under the gold dome. <laughs> yeah. Well, and, and one of the, when he's placed, when people get as close as they can to him, he'll be on a three-foot base, and you take a picture of his head straight on, his head, the dome will be right behind it. So... We've looked at a lot of things before uh, deciding on the location and the scale. Was there anything on the site before this statue? There was. There was a, uh, a small sculpture, and it was a little bit out of scale for the, for the corner. Uh, you probably never even noticed it. It was, it was done back in the 70s by the Black Caucus, and it's an interpretive piece about figures climbing through kind of a labyrinth to just uh, explain about the civil rights struggle. But it was only about, oh, I don't know, just over three feet tall on a little two-foot base. As part of the whole process, that piece, uh, and Representative, Representative Smyre was on the committee that placed it there, too. Um, so as part of the whole process and the budget, because all the money was uh, privately raised, the government did not pay for it. Uh, yeah, I don't know if I'd mentioned that before, but yeah, the, all the money was privately raised. But they, they included moving that piece and redoing a beautiful site for it just on the other side of the Magnolia. So it has a more intimate enclosed space between the Capitol stairs and this old beautiful Magnolia. And then the MLK will go on the corner corner. So that took a while to get through all that to make sure that that would be okay. But I think once they saw the photoshopping of MLK on that corner, putting him hidden in a niche next to the stairs would have been a little offensive, actually. I was going to say, that would be insulting. Yeah. And, as you say, when you come off the expressway, most people are going to see this from their car. Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah. Majority of people will see it from the car. So it should be towering. Yeah. yeah. The juxtaposition, the very idea of MLK sharing a lawn with Herman Talmadge is striking Absolutely. To say the least. Absolutely. How did you how did you deal with that? I, I hope mine's a better sculpture. <laughs> <laughs> uh, 
the Herman Talmadge was done by Stephen Thomas, who wasn't really known for his figurative work, and the anatomy's a little off, so I hope. <laughs> He's no longer alive, but uh, I, shouldn't, I shouldn't disparage him uh, in public. But, but it's a, it's, it's a, I think it's great to see them together. And, and, you know, they are the width of the capital on apart. And, you know, most of the, uh, a lot of the sculptures done of MLK, he's got a little bit of a furrowed brow, the one in D.C., uh, especially. So in this one, it, it feels hopeful. He's, he's stepping off. Uh, not he's, in a, he's not in a big stride. He's just stepping off. And the position of his hand out just a little bit as if he's stepping off. And then his head a certain way. It, it feels like it implies the future. So you look at him and you wonder what he's thinking, and it implies the future. So it, it's, not, it's not this authoritative... I want to tell you what to think kind of uh, sculpture. It's much more uh, internal, I think, when you look at it. And, and for a lot of people, it will represent uh, a lot of gains that were made in the last 50 years. Sculptor Martin Daw, his statue of Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. graces the lawn on the grounds of Georgia's State Capitol Building downtown. You've been listening to City Lights, our daily celebration of Atlanta arts and culture. We'll be back tomorrow at 11 a.m. with Tomer's Vuloon, the ever-innovative artistic director of the Atlanta Opera. He'll tell us about the opera's upcoming performances under an outdoor tent. Thanks for listening to 90.1 WABE, Atlanta's choice for NPR. Hi, it's Terry Gross, the host of Fresh Air. We bring you in-depth, long-form interviews with actors, directors, musicians, authors, journalists, and more. Listen to our Peabody Award-winning Fresh Air podcast from WHYY and NPR. Have you donated to WABE yet? I know you've heard us talking about why it's important, but it doesn't have to be this big decision. You can give at whatever amount fits your budget. It can be a spur-of-the-moment thing. You already get so much out of public radio, so just go for it. Visit wabe.org donate and become a member right now. And thank you.